0: Hey everyone and welcome to Radio YNP. I'm your host Carter Wickham, here for the Carter Wickham Show. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Senator Niall O'Donnell. So, let's jump right into it. How are you today, Niall?
1: I'm good, I'm good. I'm just coming round from City Hall, um, where I was doing some meetings with the Lord Mayor's office. Um, Spoke to Adrian for a while, who's here with us, and doing research and studying all things Ireland and uh, conflict-related, peace-building-related. And I'm delighted to be here for your show, Carter. You even give me a cup of tea, which is more than I
0: get at the BBC, which I well, pay for. well but you there know, you go. We, we try and be better than the BBC, so <laughs> at least that's an accomplishment. <laughs> well, one. that's the first box tech, <laughs> anyway. It. So we'll just jump into it here uh, with our first question. So recently, the Irish cabinet has approved a proposal for the referendum on extending the franchise to vote in the Irish presidential elections. So... Why do you think it's important that we do extend it to the Northern Diaspora?
1: Well, because we're citizens and citizens have rights. And the first, most basic uh, right or entitlement of any citizen is the right to a vote. To democratic uh, and electoral franchise. So that's the importance of it. And, and to put it into a wee bit of context very briefly, Carter, in 2013 I think it was the Constitutional Convention which was essentially a review of the Constitution um, and it involved political parties, civic society, the general public and it was it that paved the way for like the referendum on marriage equality and the repeal of the 8th. They voted overwhelmingly in favour of extending uh, that vote. Yeah. Um, so there, there's this mad uh, anomaly that you can be from the north, you can run for president like Martin McGuinness did, like Mary McAleese did, and you can actually be elected president like Mary McAleese was. You can't vote for yourself, but you can't vote um, if you're from. Uh, so, you know, Martin McGuinness's family wouldn't have been able to vote. Uh, forum in the, the, the election where he uh, ran. So it's this crazy um, offshoot anomaly, uh, one of many I would say, um, uh, that comes about as a result of, of partition. But there's a way to resolve it, this one. Um, there's, I think, support and endorsement for um, resolving it as the Constitutional Convention voted, and f- uh, over over 70% of that convention voted for, for this right to vote for those of us in the North and people amongst the diaspora as well. So for me, it's just a case of let's do it. Let, let's get the referendum, let's get it won, and let's get, get, get that vote. It's an important part of nation-building. It's an important part of the outworking of the Good Friday Agreement, and it's, it's a very clear way that the Irish government can show that we as citizens here in the north have rights and are valued as citizens.
0: So an issue right now is that the bill has not been made public, mm. and mm. so you have not been able to read and members of the Iraq does have not mm. Why do you think that it's been stalled in terms of
1: the honest answer is I don't know and I don't want to be too cynical and I don't want to say anything because I'm very conscious um, that, 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 you know of, of politics. W- what, what I want to do is for the government to live up to their promises. So, you know, the cabinet has agreed this, this, this they've agreed to do this. We were told that the legislation would be published um, before the summer break. That didn't happen. We were then told um, by the Taoiseach at the leaders' debate at Phil and Fubble that it would be published before um, the return uh, of the this in September, so at the end of the summer recess. Now, if they're to stay true to their word and they have indicated that they want this uh, referendum to take place in November, that's leaving us a really tight window. You know, We need to we need to start having the conversations about this. We need to start involving civic society. We need to start involving youth organisations to be mobilised around this and winning this. And, you know, we need to have as good a lead-in and as good a run-in to that uh, as possible. So I will be hoping that, you know, the DAL comes back on the 17th of September. We come back the following week uh, on the 24th in the Shanet. You know, it will certainly be the first thing that I raise in the Shannet on the 24th if it hasn't been published uh, by then. And I think um, what we need to then hear is, is... You know, civic voices, political voices, citizens' voices um, coming to the fore to ensure the Irish government's feet are kept firmly to the far.
0: Just what you talk about, about voices, there's been concern from members of Fianna and the Labour Party about how there isn't enough debate around this certain proposal. Now, there hasn't been enough debate. Yeah. And that's that's I
1: mean, that's crazy. Let's have the debate. You know, if you want the debate, have the debate. So I mean, we don't need the legislation to be published to have the debate. But we need the legislation to be published to have the most possible informed debate around what exactly is being asked of people.
0: And Why don't you think the debate has been happening?
1: Well I think the debate has been happening to be fair and um, the debate has been happening certainly I have raised it consistently uh, in the Shannon as has you know my colleague Jerry Adams in the Dáil and and others. I mean Billy Lawless who is a government appointed senator uh, from Chicago, originally from Galway uh, has been appointed specifically to be a voice for the diaspora so the diaspora energised around this I mean Vika, the voices for Irish citizens abroad who are predominantly London based came to Dublin before the end uh, of the Aractus term to invite uh, Iraqis members to a dedicated briefing uh, around this issue to launch their campaign at the EPIC uh, Museum which is the Museum of Irish Emigration in, in Dublin. Um, you have seen, I'm sure, some of the articles I think quite negative um, in the Irish Times and other publications. Kira Kelly and people like that there have been very vocal on this and while I do firmly believe they are a minority view what we need to do is to inject a positive dynamic into the discourse and into the conversation, because in the absence of the question, you know, in the absence of the referendum being uh, formally put forward, we are talking about this kind of, you know, it's, in Irish, it's chebby, kind of abstract. You're talking about it in an abstract way. Um, I can make the ideological and political arguments all day long and have done and will continue to do that. but. We have an opportunity here to have a legislative outcome and a a tangible outcome. And I think, you know, we need to do that in the most informed way possible, but there's nothing stopping any political party, any civic organisation, anyone with an interest in this from taking part in the debate. And in fact, I would welcome it and encourage it. The more of it, the better. So, you know, whether it's on your radio show, whether it's people writing into their local papers or their own local radio shows, people need to... You know, I, I was at, at the, I mean, look at the thousands of people. who volunteered at Phil and Football. Yep. Look at the thousands of people that attended that. Anyone I met at those events was saying to me, when is this getting sorted? When are we going to get, have this? You know, the big, most frustrating thing for people is that a, a referendum is going to decide to give us a vote and we can't vote in it. So we yep. need to be mobilized and we need to be talking to the electorate in the 26 counties so that they're encouraged to vote positively. There's far. a lot
0: of discussion at Fela about this. There was. Yeah, I saw a lot of people, you know, asking me and asking a lot of others about it. So, if when if say goes to referendum, it passes through, mm. who is allowed to vote on it in the presidential election?
1: Well, qualified Irish citizens, to be honest. Um, and I know that presents a wee personal difficulty <laughs> for you, right? And yeah. I know you're sore about it. And, and we'll have to try and carry on yeah. regardless, <laughs> Carter. <laughs> as much as I want you to have the vote. Um, but the Irish government's own estimations that they have indicated is that you would obviously have the one point eight potential, one point eight million potential voters in the north, because the way they are operating, uh, it seems, is that everyone. Uh, born in the north is entitled to Irish citizenship okay. under the Good Friday Agreement. So if
0: you still, say, only had a British passport, could you vote or do you have to have an Irish passport?
1: Well, again, this is why we need the legislation published so we can see all right. of those more nuanced things. What what, what what we have been dealing with thus far is an options paper put forward by government and they have looked at various options. So the option of the passport is one particular um, option. Now, that may be more applied to the diaspora overseas. If the government... and and I do believe they're sensitive, obviously, to the political and social dynamic here in the North, they're working on the basis that 1.8 million people are potentially eligible to become, you know, electorate and And and, and become part of the electorate. So I I think that there may be an alternative arrangement um, in, in the North that won't necessarily have to deal with the issue of having a passport in order to have a vote. That may just be something. But again... This is why it's all speculative. Certainly I'll engage in the speculative. I'd have the arguments and and make the the case. But I would be much rather, uh, I was talking to you here in an informed position armed with the actual legislation, which ironically enough, and I made the point that a discussion we held on this topic uh, a few weeks ago in the short strand with Ian Marshall, myself, Professor Colin Harvey and Andre Murphy, um, I made the point to Ian that Ian and I will ironically have a vote on the legislation and we will vote whether for or against um, the legislation, but then we won't have a vote in, in the referendum. The referendum. Yep. So you have all of these crazy anomalies, uh, as I say, presenting themselves, and I, I think this is really stark for the Irish government and for society in the 26 counties in particular that, 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 that says, you know, that we can have such a fantastic president in the form of Mary McAleese. You know, such, such a, a, a a really appreciated and respected uh, uh president someone who worked very positively in terms of the peace process in terms of uh, reconciliation but yet if uh mary magalese was still resident in ardoin she wouldn't have a vote
0: yeah so i'm cur- i'm actually quite curious you know do you think the vote will be open to say all residents of the north again this presents sort of you know for someone like myself who by the time of the next presidential election i would have been here 15 years you know yeah Well, I believe
1: believe you should have a vote. You know, that's what I would argue for. Um, I believe people who qualify for residency, people who qualify for citizenship um, should be entitled um, to to the vote. And I think, you know, in order to get to that stage, we have to get through these first early stages. And and I think, look, let's win the referendum. Let's get the vote for as many people as we possibly can. Let's engage in the next presidential referendum. election in a positive, active way and show that we value this vote, show that we value the office, um, show that the president can finally um, become uh, an office uh, and a symbol that is truly representative of all of the Irish nation, because the Irish nation is the Irish people as opposed to a landmass. And and, and I think I would like to get to the point where where people who, who, who have been here, like you, who have been here for 15 years. Should have a, a, a right to vote in the same way that I do, and that'll apply right across to many other people from other parts of the world who come and make this place their home. You know but again, the, the, the reason for all of that, and when you bring it right down and i don't necessarily I, I know this mightn't be the, the path you want to go down, so I 'll not go down it too far, but when you bring this right down to its base kind of crudest element, we have all of these anomalies and all of these discrepancies and all of these contradictions because the country's partitioned. And because, you know, we are working through a political process at the moment where we need to start looking at the constitutional future of this place. And the constitutional future isn't just about a line on a map or about a form of government, but it's also about the kind of rights we give to people and the kind of society we create. So I want to see a society that values people who come here to make this place their home and work here and contribute here and in return... I believe people should be given rights like the right to vote for, you know, the top office, um, albeit a <laughs> symbolic ceremonial role, but a very important uh, one as well.
0: Does this referendum play into the idea of talking about the constitutional future?
1: There's an element, and this came up with a discussion in The Strand the other week, um, there's an element of this that needs to be fought distinctly on its own. You know, on its own merit, okay. you know, in the same way that other referenda have been fought, you know, because, you know, you have to look at the question on the ballot paper and the outcome of it. But I think you would be very naive to think that this wouldn't be set within the context of the broader conversations that are happening out there about change, about, you know, constitutional change, political change, um, citizenship rights and equality, it, it sits within... All, some people think this is really kind of minor, and that's fair enough. If they do, if they don't place the value in this, the, 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 lake, the lake of we that's fair enough. And other people will see this very much as an advancement of rights of equality, and I think that's always a good thing. I don't think you can ever do any harm or ever be presented as a negative when you actually give people a equality, and in this case, something as worthwhile and as positive as a vote, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, for me, that's a good thing. The more we enfranchise people, the more we empower them, the more we inform them, the more we allow them to engage with government, with the state, and um, with politics, then that's a, that's a welcome thing in my eyes. So, um, I, 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 I think we need to look at this in its in its own right. And that's certainly how I'll be fighting the, the campaign for the referendum. i would be I'll be placing it very firmly on citizenship, on equality, and on rights. Um, that's 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 the prism through which I see this referendum. But I am not naive enough um, not to appreciate that this does sit quite comfortably within a whole range of conversations and changing views and adapting politics uh, that, that's that's live and current and happening out there.
0: Right, well, Thank you for that. So moving on to another topic you've been very much at the forefront of. This year, an article was published in the Irish Times saying that British passports being printed for people living in the North are at an all-time low. Mm. However, people applying for Irish passports, such as renewals, are jumping to an all-time high at 84,000 mm. as of last year. So. Uh, something you've been pushing for is a passport office in the north. Yeah, with eighty-four thousand people applying, why don't you think that we have a passport office up here? I, and I, why do we need one? I
1: don't know, uh, to be honest. And the Irish government and I have raised this privately and publicly with satanistia who's the minister for foreign affairs, um, and I have advocated the very logical, rational need for you know. Supply and demand, really, you know, there is a clearly growing, and I have a letter in the Irish News today, just about yep. this issue again. Um, so, 84,000 last year, the first six months of this year, you had 47,500 applications already coming from the six counties. Right. So, that's a trend.
0: And that's not including the one supplying from Dublin? No, that's just yeah. from the north. Yeah. That's
1: that's from the six counties, 47,000 uh, plus um, in the first six months yep. of the year, so that's a, that's a trend. That's a trend that is only going up. And wh- what you know, we're saying to the Irish government is, look, the passport office deliver a first class service, right? But the Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs recently said at uh, uh, a uh committee that they were doing so. They were that they were working under unprecedented demand, right? So you have a passport office in Dublin, you have one in Cork. Every application now coming from the north is being processed in Cork. Right. So it's, it's the furthest point geographically yeah. away from us. Right Now, there are people who will have a fantastic experience with a passport office. They'll renew it online. They'll get it in the post in three or four days. Brilliant. More part of their elbow. I'm delighted to hear it. Right, But for every one of those, I can tell you two or three or four or five or a dozen cases that come into my office and the other constituency offices across the north where people are panicked where people are held up, where people don't know, where people can't engage with a representative uh, of the passport office. And that's the unprecedented demand that the passport office are dealing with. So I don't blame the staff. I think the staff are working fantastically well. I'm blaming government
0: right. because
1: government are not taking a logical, strategic decision, for whatever reason, I don't know, I could speculate, to put an office where the demand is coming from, to meet a demand that is growing. It's that You know, I'm no statistician, but that RO keeps going up. Right, So why would you not? Because the other thing to bear in mind here is that every time you renew or you apply for a new passport, you're paying for the service. Yeah. So you're entitled to, all right, you're paying for your passport and you're getting it, but you're entitled to expect a degree of return for the money that you're paying. And I think it's a very modest, and uh, some of our policy people in Dublin have done research around this that, that uh, indicated it would be cross, cost neutral for the government to open a passport office in the north, so it wouldn't cost anything. Um, and I think it would just be symbolically, um, yes, important, but also practically really important. Because if you're from Derry, you know, or even if you're from, you know, northwest Donegal, it's not an easy thing to get to Dublin, especially okay. if you're you're trying to arrange a holiday last minute or you're, you're, you have this kind of situation inflicted on you last minute. You maybe have a couple of kids. You need to get kids mended. You need to get transportation from, you know, door. now wouldn't it make much more sense if you were going from Keithdoor in the Derry or from Derry to Belfast or from Belfast to Derry as opposed yeah. to you know having to go to Cork or Dublin at the last minute and even if it's just a case of having somewhere where you can go and engage with a human being and say look you know can you because a lot of time this is about information sharing and settling people's nerves and calming them down yeah. and the best way to do that is for someone to say look we've got your application this is where it's at this is how long it's going to take and you Know that's that's a service, it's, it is about a service at the end of the day.
0: So, I mean, that brings up a whole other topic in, about transportation west of the band mm. and all that. But in terms of the passport office, is the you know, as you said, 47,000 the first six months of this year is that creating an issue? Is that creating issues within the center in Cork or is, is I, it too I, much for them or well, well, look, listen when the
1: secretary general of the department is saying that they're working on their unprecedented demand yeah. that indicates to me that they're working on their unprecedented demand right so that indicates to me that staff are feeling the the pressure um, and they shouldn't have to you know th- th- this is a again another service another entitlement that citizens are entitled to um, i am hearing that there is quite a substantial backlog uh, of passport applications right um, and i'm hearing that privately um, so I'm not surprised, I'm not surprised It's. Yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I'm not a statistician or a mathematician but if there is a huge increase in the way that there has been and that trend is continuing consistently over a period of four to five to six years then you need to start investing in a way that meets um, that demand and Irish passports, whether it's across the entirety of the island or whether it's amongst Irish people the world over, who are entitled to them. They are a very precious commodity, and people want them, you know? Particularly, I mean, the other dynamic is obviously Brexit, and people wanting to avail of the passport because they see that as a way of securing and retaining their rights as EU citizens. Now, whether it will or will it won't, that's an argument that we need to have and need to get sorted, but it's certainly... It says something to me that the morning after the referendum decision that the post office on the Lord Newton Arch Road, you know, one of the most proudly staunchest, loyalist com- communities in the north, the passport officer runs out of application forms for Irish passports. Yeah. Now, I'm not being facetious there or I'm not being provocative. All I'm saying is that it's indicative of a change in thinking. And it may just be that. You know, that's not to say everyone's becoming, you know, staunchly Irish or United Irelanders on the Lower Newton Road. But it indicates to me that there is a wee change and there's a change in thinking. And we need to be conscious uh, of that. And we need to, I mean, without getting into the big philosophical stuff, which I've just done. um, Look, people are entitled to it. You know, in the same way that people are entitled to lobby government for a new road or a new leisure centre or a new post office. We're entitled to say to the Irish government, look, there has been consistently over the last number of years, over 80,000 applications coming from this part of Ireland. So you need to invest.
0: I mean, in terms of what you said about Brexit, uh, in 2015, 53,000 Irish passports were issued after Brexit went from 67,000 in 2016 to 82,000 in 2017. So there's clearly... And was that in Britain? no this or is from the north from people the north in the north yeah 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 through the ni passport express and so the you know, the,
1: the, the the trend that's why i asked the question because the trend in britain is similarly upward yeah i have the stats i can send them on to you you can tweet them and and, and do whatever so people have them but you know the north has gone up, up 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 but so too has the applications from uh britain have equally gone up 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 so if you contrast you know um I think it was maybe like from Britain in 2014, it was maybe something like 8,000 applications in 2014. Then this time around, it was into the kind of 38,000, yeah. you know? It so a, a significant increase yeah, Of course so it yeah. is. Of course it is. You know.
0: So moving on to another topic. As a member of the Seanan, you've had the opportunity to visit uh, drug provision centers in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, drug provision centers have been criticized by many human rights organizations mm. as illegal and inhumane. Mm what was your experience with working with going visiting these centers and could you explain to pe- pe- people who may not know you know what is a direct provision center well okay there's a couple of questions in that yeah. and uh,
1: i mean direct provision is essentially how the state in the south accommodate uh, asylum uh, seekers and refugees who come uh, to the the 26 counties um they are not conducive with a happy and healthy life That's my view of them, Um, and they can't be. Um, They're essentially, and and I don't want to be deliberately provocative because I'm very conscious of my role on the Justice Committee and very conscious that we're working on a report currently into direct provision and emergency accommodation. Um, But it is not something that I'm proud of uh, as an Irish person. Um, I'm not proud of it because of our own experience of having to flee and having to seek refuge and a better life elsewhere. Um, It's also not, um, I I don't believe it makes political, social or economic sense to treat people in this way where you're essentially locking them up and you're locking them up to the benefit of private interest who a lot of the time run these centres. And sometimes there is uh, very clear allegations of um, exploitation of harm uh, being done uh, to people there. And I think we can for people in a much better way, in a much more human rights uh, compliant way, um, and in a way that actually supports the people who are coming to seek uh, life here. Not economic migrants, you know, people who come and work in hospitals, yep. and, you know, that's entirely different. These are people who are fleeing, you know, the horror that we're seeing in syria and yemen Um there are people who are coming uh because they're persecuted as lgbt people uh, in their own uh, home place and what we're doing is we're essentially locking them away out of sight we're locking them away in a provision that is not uh fit again as i i, I, I contest for a happy and healthy um, life at times we're splitting up families at times we're putting children into uh, facilities where there are uh, older men, for example, um, and it just is not coherent, it's not well-run, it's not good, and I believe that the only people who are benefiting from it are the private interests who are being paid by government to treat these people in such uh, a
0: poor and hostile way. Because I read an article recently and... A big topic in the news right now is about um, migrants moving from Mexico into the United States mm. and sort of the ICE centers that mm. America's using to facilitate them. And I've seen some people say that Ireland's direct provision centers, which aren't really in the spotlight of the media, yeah. are considerably worse than the standards of that, which would be alarming to of course, the readers. Of course. Look,
1: b- well... Sorry for cutting across you, no. but but, I mean I can't get into the specifics because I I put my hand up and say that you know when we went to visit uh, a number of centres we went and seen two, um, one that would be held up I think as kind of the model, yeah. and I'm doing our quotes there when I'm doing that um, for direct provision, oh. and another maybe that wasn't so much. Um, I haven't seen. You know, we've all seen the stories and heard the stories of what's happening in in, in the states. Yep. Um, it would be difficult for me to compare and no, contrast, course, yep. having not been there. But what I, but what the point I do, do want to make is that it's the same mentality. Right? It's the same mentality that says people who are in need of care and in need of support, coming to seek refuge and that support, are being treated in what many would suggest is an inhumane way, um, and a way that doesn't meet their specific needs and doesn't meet um, their their nuanced requirements. So that's the worrying thing for me. Direct provision is not nice. It's not nice to visit. It's not nice to go and see. Um, it's not a nice place for people to exist because I don't quite think they're living yep. there. They're existing there. Um, so the, the comparison with the states and indeed with other um, European states where you know, you're seeing right-wing uh, administrations put people in cages, You know, a colleague of mine, Paul Gavin, who's a senator from Limerick, visited Hungary and was deeply, deeply traumatised by what he saw, essentially young people being held in cages. And he wrote about that on the journal.ie, and you can read that. I would commend that article uh, to your listeners to get a wee bit of a view around Paul's experience. But we can't hold our nose up at at other places doing this when when people are coming to Ireland, you know, the land of a thousand welcomes, um, a hundred thousand welcomes. And this is how we're treating people who are, you know, being rescued from the Mediterranean Sea, you know, you're, you're putting them into a, a, a situation that is just awful, with no guarantee of when they're going to leave, with no guarantee of whether or not they will be able to get a job, uh, get education, um, sometimes their days are so regulated that they have to have set meals, they have to go into a canteen style set up, they have no front door, they have no... Um, uh, you know, cooking facilities to cook for themselves that comes into issues around people who have specific religious or cultural requirements around their diets um, I met one family in direct provision in County Monaghan where six members of the one family were essentially living in two rooms um, so that's what we're doing and, and, and that's what's happening in Ireland in 2019 and I think for me the worrying thing is that it indicates to me a same culture and a same kind of I suppose culture is the right word, that allowed the Magdalene laundries to happen, that allowed the 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 the, 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 the kind of mother and baby homes uh, to happen. Um, and I think we need to wake up because what we're going to be dealing with in 25, 30, 35 years is a generation of people similar to the generation um, who left the laundries and left the mother and baby homes. And suddenly we were surprised. Suddenly we were shocked that this had happened Uh, in our streets, in our towns, in our counties. But if we don't wake up to direct provision, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a generation who we have failed and who I think would rightly come back uh, and not just demand um, justice from government and from the state, but demand justice from the Irish people. Because if we turn a blind eye to this, I think it's fundamentally wrong anyway, but I think it will have long-term repercussions for us as a people to our shame unless we wake up and do something about direct provision. Now, so, I mean, fair play to you, Carter, and fair play um, to this organisation for you know, taking an interest in this issue and trying to promote it and trying to uh, become more informed because part of solidarity, and I believe people there need solidarity in direct provision, is to inform yourself. Informing yourself is an act of solidarity in and of itself. But then the next thing is to think about how you're going to address that injustice, how you're going to work with the many organisations, the many great people who are doing brilliant work to support um, uh, uh, people in direct provision. I mean, there's people there who are having to go out and, you know, acquire uh, additional food because people aren't being fed, right? Um, There are people having to go out there and acquire uh, sanitary products for women who are living in direct provision because they're not being provided with the necessary uh, uh, products. And, you know... The whole other, and maybe it's a, a debate we can have another day, and I spoke to you briefly about it a number of weeks ago, is the issue of emergency accommodation.
0: I was going to bring that up. Okay. Because well, let's have with, a talk about with that. direct provision centres does come the topic of emergency accommodation. Mm. But just before we move on to that, when you came and spoke to a group and part of Belfast e a couple of weeks ago, a quote which stuck out to me mm-hmm. and to many others was when you said, what's happening now is our generation's Magdalene Laundries, mm-hmm. which for you know knowing the atrocities which took place then mm. it's it's sort of a shocking idea that as you know a country that many of us are citizens of and all is doing that type of thing sort of under our noses and that a lot of people aren't aware of it you know when you came need him, most people weren't aware that direct person centers existed so it's about bringing that to light as well but on the topic of emergency accommodation uh when we spoke about this a number of weeks ago, you brought up interesting and shocking stories. Mm. Same as in sort of direct provision. So how does the emergency accommodation system work? Well, it does exactly what it says on the tin in many
1: ways. So people who find themselves in, in, in here uh, in Ireland, well, certainly, sorry, in the south, I should say, um, because it's two different uh, systems operating um, across the island. But when people find themselves coming as I say, sometimes in very traumatic, desperate, horrific uh, ways. If there is not provision within direct provision, then what you'll find is um, people will be then put in uh, emergency accommodation. So emergency accommodation predominantly takes the form of um, old hotels or an old college maybe that had boarding. Uh, space in it, and people will be put in there. Um, they will be um fed maybe two or three times a day. Essentially, we're gaoling people, right? right? If if I can if I can bring it down to the are the, they allowed to leave? Well, a lot of the time th- they'll be told they'll be allowed to leave, but if you know a lot of these places sit out, they're isolated.
0: Okay.
1: Um, they're kind of like old country Cause- hotels or you know schools they sit away. If there isn't the infrastructure, there people good. have been telling us. Even in, that applies in direct provision as well. You know that there's maybe one or two buses a day, and if you don't get the bus, then that's you. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people need the bus because people do uh, work. Those who are lucky enough to get to work, maybe people who get to school um, or, or uh, higher education. Um, so it's it's. I, I do firmly believe that. I mean, I didn't say that to be kind of scandalous, um, but I do believe because the provision is kind of quasi known. It's a term that maybe people hear and it it, kind of resonates with them somewhere. But, like, for me, you know, the comparison with the laundries and the mother and baby homes is the fundamental issue of, excuse me, out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, we have heard the allegations of of exploitation, of, of, you know, even potential trafficking and things like that. Um, But I I think of the... uh, Woman Silva in in Galway who was in direct provision. She was a transgender woman, and she came. She was living in direct provision, and she she died, and essentially direct provision centre buried her. And didn't tell anybody, didn't tell her friends, didn't tell maybe the LGBT organisations that she was working with in um, Galway. So I mean, that's that's the same mentality. That's the same perspective of 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 the laundries that people essentially are commodities. That people aren't really valued uh, in the same way. That people aren't um, cherished and their rights protected. So, I mean, what does it say about us as a society um,
0: that the government can just bury somebody and not tell anyone? Why has why hasn't the Irish state taken this on themselves to look after? Why have they sort of given this to third party companies? such so in inject provision and in well, I think that's a, I think that's a neoliberal. Uh, outworking of of
1: of their ethos of their they're they're quite content to pay private interest to manage this problem again. Air quotes yeah. um, for them. Um, I believe actually, and I don't even mean to put it in this kind of crass way, but even if you were to look at this solely on the basis of value for money, right? If you were so cold and so callous to be doing that, it makes much more sense to me that the state would invest in the proper uh, provision of living accommodation, uh, of uh, access to work and education because people who are educated and who work actually contribute to the state and contribute to our economy um, as opposed to private paying private interests a hotel rate. So if this guy operates a hotel, he can say to the government, well, I want you to pay me €160 an on it
0: because that's
1: what I would charge for this hotel room. But he doesn't then have to give the guys in emergency accommodation access to the spa, you know? Yeah. They get God knows the what. They get the bare minimum. Um, we had examples there told to us of people uh, living in an uh, emergency accommodation, which was an old hotel in Monaghan, and the owner of the hotel wanted to honour an existing wedding booking. So basically shipped them all up on a bus all over um, the south of Ireland, put some into guest houses, put some into B&B's, put some into maybe a, a, an old rundown hotel, book them in here, there and everywhere. Um, now what does that say to people? What does that say? Like, people who are coming here maybe from seeing the awful horror of war and conflict, uh, they're coming here to try and avail of a better life. They... All have specific needs around PTSD, around, you know, maybe medical requirements, mental health issues. Some of them are young people and children. And, you know, it's bad and bad enough that they find themselves in emergency accommodation. But then somebody can just say, we're putting you on a bus. We're taking you to the other side of the country. We're going to put you up there for two nights. You don't know when you're coming back. You don't yeah. know, are you coming back? You don't know where you're going. To... Is this where I'm living now? Am I now here?
0: Does that have to be passed through someone? Is there no. someone with an no. Department of Justice or anything where that has to be? I'm shipping these people off.
1: And I asked that question of Departmental Officials at the Justice Committee. And again, I'll send you the link. Watch their reaction. Because I asked them could it happen again? And I didn't I wasn't told no. So I don't know. Could be happening tonight. You know? So that's the problem um with direct provision. It has become a monster. And by the way, I don't want to be saying that like I'm making it about us when I make the point about you know, the the, the 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 comparison with the Magdalene laundries or things coming back to us in later years. I mean, my first interest in this is the needs of the people who are actually having to um, uh, exist within direct provision and emergency accommodation. Our focus needs to be on their needs, on their welfare, on their future. Um, the the aspect for us is but an offshot uh, of that. So we have a resolution here, and the resolution is to invest properly in a system that... Um, and, and by the way, I understand that a state needs to manage um, people who are seeking asylum and seeking refuge there, and, and, and that's fair enough. Nobody's disputing that. Yep. What I'm saying is it needs to be done in a way you know, that if you profess to be a republic that is republican in its truest sense, in that it values the citizen, values the person, values their rights and their entitlements... Um, And then it needs to be done in a way that supports them, and that helps them, that actually gives them um, the opportunity to avail of refuge. You know what I mean? People coming seeking refuge and asylum are coming with a very distinct need, and I think we have a a societal, but in the first instance, a human responsibility to meet the needs in the best way that we possibly can. And can I say, in my firm view, direct provision doesn't do that. In fact, it doesn't come anywhere near doing that. And that's why direct provision needs to end. And we need to look at a system that is, as I say, much more human rights compliant, but also compliant to the needs of the human.
0: So moving on to a case that you've been heavily involved in Mm -hmm. of the hooded men. Okay. Yep. You've brought forward key legislation to the Seanad, and you've also gotten members of the Oireachtas to uh, speak to survivors of that mm-hmm. case. So, what motivated you to get involved in a case such as that? Well, probably the men themselves,
1: um, and obviously the hooded men is an infamous case. Um, it's infamous here, but it's known all around the world, and has has had global. Uh, ramifications yeah. and significance in terms of the utilisation of the initial judgement um, that, that found um, the men were, weren't were tortured but were subjected to inhumane and degrading treatment as if that's okay I love yeah. the, the, the casual blasé yeah, use that's... of, we didn't torture them we subjected them to degrading and inhumane treatment, I oh, was well, sure that's grand then. you know what I mean, it's yeah. crazy um, the men were tortured and that's my firm uh, uh, view um, and it 's obviously their real experience, so listening to the men themselves and listening to what they endured at a specifically built torture center at Bally Kelly right this wasn 't a kind of you know barracks up the road as people thought it was these these men were and, and the state papers all prove this at a at a dedicated center that was built for the purposes of testing the five techniques as they have become known, and that 's things like um you know the use of the kind of the the position the prolonged stress position, st- stress yeah. position um things like white noise things like that food and sleep deprivation um and then the guys talk about the sixth technique which was just sheer brutality just you know absolute brutality inflicted upon them So when you hear the men uh, speak, and it's maybe worth trying to speak to some of them, uh, Carter, for this show, um, when you hear their story, you want to do something. And to be fair to the Irish government, the Irish government took the British uh, state to uh, court uh, around the allegations made by the men. And as I say, the court found uh, at Europe that the men were subjected to uh, degrading and inhumane treatment.
0: And there was... Last year, I believe it was brought up again. Yeah, they it? went
1: back for the final appeal, and unfortunately for the men, uh, that judgment was upheld um, that they weren't, in fact, subjected to torture, that they were subjected to inhumane and degrading treatment. Now, I want to make an important point about that judgment and why it is so key because the US government, the Israeli government, and other, uh, many other um, practitioners of uh, inhumane and degrading treatment um, or torture have cited this judgment yeah. as cover, as justification for similar techniques and probably God knows what more on top of it since the early 1970s when these men experienced uh, torture at Bally Kelly um, has been cited all around the world. So the sad unfortunate fact is that this judgment is upheld as a cover and a blanket for states and governments around the world who essentially want to uh, torture their own or indeed uh, citizens from elsewhere. Um, so that's the global reach of this yep. judgment and that's why it was so important that the Irish government was seen to stand up for A, the hooded men uh, in themselves, but also stand up against the use of torture and against the, the belief and the view that states can uh, torture people and get away with it. And that's the unfortunate reality of what happened to hooded men. The British government tortured them. There's no doubt about that. They tortured them. They subjected them to torture. British uh, government ministers travelled from London to observe the torture techniques. Uh, and that, again, all of those papers are freely available. They're not my papers. They're the British government's own papers. Yeah. Um, the uh, Secretary of State here at the time referenced in a, uh, in a handwritten note to the British Prime Minister at the time the use of torture um, on the specially selected prisoners. So it's all there, but the unfortunate reality is that the British government and indeed the Americans and the Israelis and others who have cited this judgment have gotten away with it and they're able to get away with it because that judgment has been upheld.
0: I mean, as you said, this has, if the judgment was ever changed to torture, it has serious ramifications across the world for governments such as America mm-hmm. who, if I remember correctly... What happened here with the Hooded Men case was given to them after 9 11 mm. when they needed a, a way to interrogate or torture mm. um, members of Al Qaeda, etc. So it will have serious ramifications. So, for the final question, mm-hmm. um, in the show, I like to sort of look at the beginning of a politician's sort mm-hmm. of career. And so, question is, is Why did you get involved in politics and why did republicanism, you know, why did republicanism sort of fall on you? Um,
1: Well, I I think
0: I've always been political. I think
1: I've always been political and sometimes being political is seen sometimes as a negative. I actually think it's a real positive because it's that old cliche of everything is political. And and I think if you inevitably question things, if you question the status quo, if you question the norm as to why things are, then you are inherently political. And I was someone who questioned a lot of things a lot of times. Um, so and Adrian and I were just having this conversation earlier at the at the city hall. I mean, certainly I observed and followed because I suppose it's fair to say I I'm from a political and republican family, um, and they. Republican and political community and neighbourhood and society. But, you know, as well as questioning and looking and observing and following all of the big, seminal, macro-political things that were happening here in terms of our peace process, in terms of ceasefires and disarmament and all of that kind of stuff, um, fully aware of that, as engaged as I suppose I could be in that, in terms of trying to find out what was happening. I also looked at it much more in the macro level as well, at local level. Yep. You know about the lack of housing provision in my own community, about the militarisation of my community, about why my community had walls all around it, around why young people didn't have access to, you know, proper sports and leisure and healthcare facilities. Um, and then that's probably more nuanced in in, in the sense of, you know, even post '98 and post Good Friday Agreement, we still had an awful lot of intercommunity tension where I lived in East Belfast. Um, so that would manifest itself quite forcefully and quite you know uh, clearly at, at various occasions, and that would further um, um, engage your, your thinking. But for me, republicanism makes sense. I'm a Republican. I believe in the the truest tone. You know, esque of uh, Republicanism. Um, you know, around equality, liberty, and fraternity. Around you know, the 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 citizen being sovereign, the people being sovereign. Um, that's that's my kind of romantic yeah. I, I, ideological view of the world. Um, but I also believe that Martina Anderson has this. We saying that, and and I I I I didn't really hear it until recently, and it's probably broadly known. I'm sure. You know, but it's that old thing of. If not me, then who? If not now, then when? And I suppose I I kind of engaged on that basis unbeknownst to me. I did always think that, you know, well, do something, you know. And and, and by the way, that that range from, like, putting leaflets through doors around community campaigning and things like, you know, road traffic safety, things like, you know, more social housing in the area. It wasn't all huge, big although that was part of it, but it wasn't always huge, big kind of Republican and, you know, peace process and those kind of things. Grassroots. I think so, yeah, and I I still like to be involved in grassroots politics. Um, People call me parochial and people say, you know, about the short strand, people being very parochial, but that's okay. I don't see that as a bad thing. I actually quite see that as quite a good thing. If you're involved in politics, it's important not to forget where you you, you come from. And, you know, if there's a campaign in the strand – I'll be involved in it, you know, and there are, and I am. But there's also things like last week, you'll see in the rally to support the people in the New Lodge after a horrible couple of days, after the unwanted uh, criminal bonfire. They're um, always going to go back to that kind of grassroots politics, always going to do my best where I can to be involved in that because that's that's really where it's at. That's always where it's going to be. So, you know, whether it's young people, uh, as I was at that stage, trying to campaign for, for... more rights for for equality but also for things like more facilities and more provision then that that is inherently political and it's good politics yep. and that's why I like it so people shouldn't be afraid of it or people shouldn't discourage it there's a reason why the you know the government and th- sometimes things like the council and people that are you know there's a reason why they try and brand being political as a negative right because it upsets their particular apple yep. cart so you know I don't care what you want to call it call it Active, call it engaged, call it, you know, woke, you know. Yeah. Is that my call it whatever you want, but just do it is yeah. is the honest kind of thing. So, that's that's. I think I've broke your whole system here. <laughs> <laughs> you can, ear edit, this out, you? can yeah. you edit this out, can't you? this It's only my earphones. There we go. I can hear myself again. Thank God. Do you want to reset your? No, no, you go, no leave that in. No. It shows how much of an idiot I am too <laughs> I'm clumsy enough to knock
0: the wires out of things. But there you go. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the show today. It was I a pleasure David having Carter. you and learning more about sort of what happens down south and across the island. So thank you now for coming on the show today. And thank you for everyone for listening. Good man. Carter, thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Carter Wickham Show here on Radio YNP. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to listen to more, make sure to check out our catalog here on Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud. If you want to check out more, go to RadioYNP.com, where you can get The Carter Welcome Show, plus other content from creators from across the network. Also make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at RadioYNP. And thank you for listening, and enjoy your day.